Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. Today, Victor and I and a small motley of guests are going to discuss disabilities in the dreaming. It's important to remember that the dreaming and chimerical reality are psychoactive realities, not in the sense that they affect the mind, although they do, in the sense that they are psychological actors in the story. The chimerical quality of a person, place, or thing often reflects on the emotional or imaginative state of another living thing. In the case of changelings and their appearances, for example, this reflects on their own emotional state. In the case of chimera, their reality is a little bit more mutable. They take on qualities from other things. Even changelings do this a little bit in their relationship with banality. What happens when a thing or a person with chimerical qualities is getting input from more than one source or mind? I think this question is best illustrated by cultural differences. In this case, the difference in the perception of assistive devices between the able, that is people who do not have a disability or a challenge, and those of people who live with a disability. For those who don't know, assistive technology includes things like glasses, hearing aids, cochlear implants, wheelchairs, lifts, canes, insulin pumps, notebooks, headphones, allergy alert dogs, GPS devices, anything that assists its user in navigating daily life. This is a generality, and all generalities are false, but generally, able people see assistive technology negatively. Many able-bodied people see a wheelchair and think of it as a prison or a signifier of weakness. To be confined to a wheelchair is a common turn of phrase in the dominant community. Able people see an assistive device and think of the disability first. On the other hand, people who use assistive technologies generally see their accessories as glorious things that make their lives possible. They see assistive technology as freedom. What happens when these two things collide? In reality, the dominant perspective results in ableism. That is the invalidation of the experience of disabled people and a general resistance toward making the world friendlier for disabled people. Ableism seeks to make disabled people invisible and hopefully to go away so that we, the abled body, aren't made uncomfortable. It's one of the faces of violence in the world. How do these things interact with chimerical reality and act in the politics of Concordia? Several changeling groups could be reflections of different sorts of disabilities. She houses Dougal and Baylor are, to a person, physically challenged. House Varric and the mannequins could reflect on autism spectrum disorders. The Dan and she read like a reflection on Alzheimer's. The she generally seem to suffer from a sort of monomania or narcissistic or antisocial personality. With so many groups so core to the identity of the game, potentially living with disabilities, Changeling is uniquely positioned within the world of darkness to examine the lives of people with disabilities. And we wanted to look at that today. We're going to be doing a few interviews in this episode to talk about the subject from different angles, because really every corner of Changeling that can be used to inspect disability inspects the experience of engaging with the world with unique challenges in very different ways. And so we wanted to get a number of different opinions on that. Our first guest is Natalie Gerani. He is one of the players at my table. And I'm going to go ahead and let him introduce himself and talk a little bit about his experience with Changeling and this subject matter. Hi, I'm Natalie. 
longtime listener, first time player. My experience with Changelings rather interesting sounds trite, but as someone who has to actively navigate the world around me, consciously aware of the difference in how I have to interact with the world, Changeling really strikes to the core of that by having a dual layered world that a character has to actively navigate every moment that they are aware of. I mean, getting outside of like the complex, like mists and memory and all these other dynamics, that's really, that's a really core thing to touch upon. So that's, that's one of the things that really draws me to it. So what is your personal experience with disability, unique challenges in the world? And do you think that it has a place in Changeling the Dreaming? Well, I'm what's called on the autism spectrum. Pretty light compared to some people I know, but I have a difficulty with social interaction. It's it takes a lot more energy and it takes a lot more active practice and understanding to get through what I see other people navigate, even socially awkward people navigate more fluidly. Facial expressions are difficult sometimes. I came home earlier today and I had to navigate evaluating a coworker's behavior to understand whether maybe they dislike me or not, or maybe I'm reading into them being upset about something. And I have to do that every day, all day. It gets a bit wearing, but <laughs> so the place I see changelings act, as I said before, they're actively having to navigate that. The place that I see Changeling really doing an amazing job of bringing these types of subjects into a really relevant sphere, especially in role-playing, which is often you want to be the bigger, better version of yourself without any of the baggage. Well, Changelings can't be. They are the better, bigger, better version because they're these fantastical things that live these fantastical lives but they're also horrendously mundane. They're also boring in certain spheres because you can't be both all the time, every time. So you're having to balance and you're having to, f to navigate that balance. Changeling puts it in game mechanics, but you can easily just understand the difficulty from a role-playing perspective. And especially with some of the specifics that uh, Simon brought up, like House Dougal and Baylor, and I was personally unfamiliar with House Varric up until he introduced it. It's also baked into some of the very kiths or very subdivisions of the kiths that there is a space in Changeling to talk about these types of things. World of Darkness is occasionally really, really awful. And one of the ways it is frequently really, really awful is around the topic of disability and mental health. And 
one of the things I was really interested in coming up with the idea for this episode was the places that I, as somebody who is more or less, you know, typical, can't see because of my, you know, privilege. Where do you think the game has room to be better about all of this? Well, sticking entirely within the realm of Changeling, because if we're talking about the greater world of darkness, I could spend quite some time going on what that's fair. That, what they could improve. But specifically speaking to Changeling, one of the major mechanics that I talk about that you could easily just role play, at least in previous editions, sticking to the fantastical world too much, staying too much in a freehold or spending too much time in the dreaming literally results in this complete disconnect called bendlam. This complete, what from an outsider's perspective is insanity, even though to them it may make absolute perfect sense. Speaking to how that sometimes rings as, well, able people don't have to worry about going to some safe harbor mentally very often. But for changelings, their literal safe harbor is in the end toxic to them. Now, the dynamic in C20 has changed slightly. That's more of a measure of certain variation in mechanics, but it's sort of the, if I had to pick a central critique that I'd say, I understand why it exists, but it still feels like we get it. Life is going to be difficult and you can never, ever, ever stay fully away from problems. But when you literally turn someone's safe space into poison for them after too long. You you can read it as, well, yes, you do have to face the difficulties of real life. But the other thing is that you're saying that retreating as a form of self-care is bad. At the end of a long day, I will do what I call as hermit. I will seclude myself and my partners understand that this is not me being upset with them. This is literally just me being completely exhausted. Or there will be moments where I as Natali have to stop acting. I put on a lot of expressions and facial tics and vocalizations that aren't actually natural to me without practice. And that's exhausting. So I will put those things away when I am done for a day. Now, for a changeling, that turns into basically sticking their face in acid for as long as they can stand it. So for changelings, there's a five-minute safe harbor you can go to, but if you spend too long, you're going to go nuts. That's a that's a bit harsh to me. The joke I've heard about Changeling is you're supposed to be happy, and if you're not, the gun that is being held to your head is going to go off. That 
was literally enforced in one of that in that way because they have no safe space. It's interesting because I, I've seen a lot of the parallels, but the freehold bedlam thing, which came back with Book of Freeholds. I mean, that wasn't in the C20 core book, but it was reintroduced. I'd never thought about it in those terms. And so that, that does kind of make me think, like, how how could I tweak that? How could I adjust it? Mm-hmm. Um, There's another layer there with going into the dreaming, which is, you know, ostensibly home territory. But once you hit the deep dreaming, the one on the other side of the Valley of the Mists, suddenly everything that tied you to humanity is evaporating and dying, which is another hit on that chord now that it's been pointed out to me. Yeah, that is true. So I have a question because I've used them in our game, mannequins or dolls. They're one of the, you know, beyond the broad changeling parallels with neurodivergence um, mannequins are to me at least read as intentionally trying to tap that I'm an alien pretending not to be alien oh god oh god I don't know how much of the write-up you've actually read for them but between whatever write-up you have read and the way I've used them which is like half antagonist half neutral what are your feelings on that idea and having a character that amps that up so or character class really, that amps up those dynamics as high as mannequins do in the game? Well, so when I see mannequins, I see Pinocchio. I see Data. I see a million and one character... And I'm using trope in just the general way, not the negative connotation. When you brought... Uh, mannequins into our game you specifically had them sort of feeding off of being humanized in any way they wanted to be they wanted to be felt about that was their major drive whereas in most media it's the thing trying to be this thing it is not i personally think they're a great inspection of the mechanical misunderstood other or the one that has to act out what it isn't. Because at the end of the day, a mannequin may be the most perfectly shaped human being that ever was, which actually makes it inhuman to begin with because no human is shaped perfectly. Even if you could get it down to the pores, a mannequin isn't human. It's never been, never will be. It's an imitation. That's not to devalue it. That's just to say, in order for it to navigate a world, it has to operate from a realm of complete misunderstanding. It has to approximate everything. I mean, I do that a lot. Something I don't really bring up a lot, but... I never understood why people lied, ever. It didn't make sense. Why? Not that I couldn't see negative consequences occurring for entirely truthful statements. I didn't understand why people would react negatively to it. I eventually learned around that, but for the longest time, that resulted in me being seen as 
mean? And I didn't understand why. I had to learn the behavior that didn't make any sense to me. I had to learn to tailor statements to groups or to a situation because it didn't come to me. It's not part of me. So mannequins are a great example of that. I mean, in most cases, it's like the the Pinocchio example. They they look inhuman, but they want to be that better example, or they're a they're a tinker toy, or a dozen other examples. But they have to act out everything, and that's that's done in science fiction a lot because they want you to examine those own, those behaviors about yourself. But with mannequins, it's not really about the examination of that behavior. It's what makes this behavior worthwhile that they think it's worth imitating. I really like that take on mannequins. It also kind of makes me think about the Arcadian she. We tend to talk about the she a lot in terms of inspection of privilege, and they are clearly written to do that. But at the same time... There's a little bit of a, a cross-section of privilege that kind of gets into the, oh, I don't understand why this hurts you, that's amped up by the Arcadian she not getting that. They haven't been human. They only barely remember their host's human time on Earth. And so it strikes me that that's... Let's also remember that in the deep, deep dreaming, the one stat they have that goes to crap is empathy. That's true. Mm -hmm. She become totally incapable of empathy in the deep dreaming. Mm -hmm. And so that does speak to this. It's interesting that like that frames them differently in my head than I usually frame them. Yeah. And I think it's important to note too, that one of the ways somebody just described autism to me was that everybody is bad at being psychic. People with autism are worse and it gets at that sense that there's both an inborn skill for empathy and a learned skill for empathy. For me, I always read the deep dreaming she has having more to do with antisocial personality, narcissistic personality, the unholy trio of pop culture crime procedurals. Oh, oh yeah, that is so true. Well, let's also remember that one of the deep dreaming examples for a, for a kith that a lot of players actually like to play, um, trolls, they actually have a far more disturbing version of what I would view as the same behavior. If their charge is to protect you, they will literally protect you against your will. Their literal ability to empathize with and understand that you might not want your agency stomped all over by them disappears. So, I mean, but that's not reflected stat-wise for them. It's just reflected in a narrative way that it's described. So, I mean, I can certainly understand how the she, antisocial, blah, like, Lord from on high, but I can also understand it from the perspective that, and this is a great example because the Shi are meant to exemplify feudalism. The difference between a king and a serf is so vast that a king can never truly 
empathize or understand the situations in the daily life of a serf, which if we're going with the feudal example, the she are kings and queens and nobility, and the other kiths to them are all serfs and at best knights. So one of the big points of a changeling's life is when they go through their chrysalis, when they figure out what it is they are and how they're different from everyone else and, you know, different in the neutral, maybe good, maybe bad sense, not different in the, oh my God, I hate difference sense. Do you think there's a way to, a way to naturally express the awareness of one's disabilities into that story? Being diagnosed. Honestly, the day I was told by the third different counselor, hey, you ever considered you might be on the spectrum? Was day one of a three-day down cycle. My partners can attest I was quite removed for a few days. So... As one of Natalie's partners, I, I will attest to that. So the other thing I remember, like, there was you coming back from the counselor, and then I remember that we all kind of went, yeah, I mean, that's, it didn't really surprise any of us, which also kind of hit you. But then I remember you talked to your mother, and she was like, oh, yeah, that was diagnosed when you were a kid. But you had no memory of her telling you. And I remember... If your reaction to your counselors were kind of like the tremor leading up to what I imagine Chris was being in the game, that conversation was the door being blown open. Like that was, I remember that being very stark in terms of the sudden shift in how you dealt with the topic. Part of it is traumatic. Part of it is this great sort of expansion of your own understanding. And part of it is trying to navigate not feeling like, well, crap. Because for the longest time, I could put it in terms like everyone else had a playbook that I didn't. But with actual diagnosis and counselors sitting there telling me, well, these sets of behaviors really line up with this, allowed me to explore and gain an understanding about a whole myriad set of other behaviors that sort of fell within the same vein. My understanding of myself expanded. Chrysalis is often described as both this traumatic yet understanding expanding sort of moment or period of time because you, you have some chrysalis that could last days, some less minutes. There's lots of room in there depending on how you want to narrate it. But really, one of the best sort of examples I can think of is just being diagnosed or even maybe possibly navigating that on your own. Just, well, hey, I might I might be this way. I should see someone about it. For me, I'm on the other side of it and I feel much better and I can navigate this thing. I can, it is a part of me. It is sane and named. It doesn't define who I am, 
but it is an aspect which is rolled into the rest. For a changeling, that chrysalis, in terms of the game, it's a much more pivotal life sort of shifting event because the expansion of their understanding introduces them to this entire other world that they gain magical access to. I've always been very in with other people who have neurodivergence, stuff like that. So it wasn't as if I was stepping my foot into a world I'd never been in before. But for, let's say, some kid who's being told, well, we've been monitoring you, your parents were worried, you're on the spectrum. They mostly diagnose it in kids. When you're four or five, like, that's your chrysalis. That's that's that. You are becoming part of, and you're going to be interacting with, a world that a lot of people don't. You're going to introduce yourself to a lot of terms, ideas, people, that a lot of neurotypical, and I'm using quote bunnies there, don't. And so that's that's the best example. Chrysalis and <laughs> what is, in changeling terms, one of the more mundane things that can happen to you, probably fairly banal because it's sort of it's sort of structuring this thing about you, but it being diagnosed. That um, it makes me think of one of my friends, well, this couple that I know whose son was finally, finally diagnosed as being on the spectrum. I was having dinner with them a while back after Gray had been diagnosed, and his mom is doing the, the the disability cheerleader thing where she's like learning everything she can and repeating it at every opportunity, really driving home that Gray is very different and needs to be handled differently. Rachel's mom, who was also there, was listening to Rachel but looking at Gray, and she said to Rachel... Well, it looks like Gray doesn't want to talk about this right now. Do you want to talk about this right now, Gray? And Gray was like, no, I don't. And he's like, at this point, he was like four. And Rachel just steamrolled right over that. I kind of describe Changeling to my friends who don't game as the perfect way to explain microaggressions to people. The story about my friends and their son seems like a good example of a disability banality trigger, if there is such a thing. Do you, do you think that's a, a fairly accurate read on that? I think that's a completely accurate read on it, and I can totally tell you about some of my banality triggers. Being told to smile. You'd think that that wouldn't come up. I'm, I'm a dude. You mostly think of that through the gendered lens of, oh, she'd be prettier if she smiled. Except... People say things all the time with the expectation of a emotional reaction. And if I'm too tired or I don't feel like it, so it could be a smile, it could be a polite laugh at something that isn't even, it's not, it's not that it's like insulting or anything. It's just to me, not funny, but no, like that's, that's totally a wonderful example of like, the microaggression for the situation you described is very, very easy to see. 
And I could totally understand the way it would express across a gaming table in a changeling session, and it wouldn't be pretty. <laughs> yeah, and it it's interesting because when we first started playing changeling, you know, the, the group that, that Natalie's in with some of our other partners, the first time I had a banality trigger come up, and I thought nothing of it. It's the first banality trigger of the game. You, you're not even necessarily going to fail it. No big deal. Everyone just, like, seized. And it's that, that has shifted. Everyone understands that a few banality triggers a game are going to happen, hopefully not to the same person. But it was interesting because I would say, you know, a, a good swath of the players in that game are more neurotypical. I, most of the people I know, you know, you can find some aspect of them that's a little neurodivergent, but closer to baseline. And it was just interesting for me hitting that moment because thinking probably isn't something that comes up all that often in day-to-day life but for a lot of people that's just part of getting through the day and getting everyone used to the idea that this is just going to be part of getting through the day for your changelings it it took a few game sessions it was also just funny to observe being the one who wasn't bothered by it as much i mean because my my character had a banality trigger whatever i i was trying to be funny and I just rolled with it from that point. But it was also interesting just to see how everyone else in the group reacted to the way you made mannequins act. And they were all creeped out by it. And I'm like, this is my... I'm feeling so attacked right now, face. But I know he's not reading me. (laughs) It's the character. I will sit back and watch the drama unfold. (laughs) (laughs) A game of Changeling with less than one banality trigger is like, that's like the best day ever. That's like, I don't know what that day is. It's supposed to be what Friday and Saturday feel like, supposedly, but I don't know what Friday or Saturday feels like. I still get asked if the joke was funny. (laughs) One of the things that I wanted to look at was what the chimerical reality of assistive technology would be. And, you know, big wide umbrella here for what qualifies as an assistive device. But is there anything that like jumps readily to mind for you that would like be a good base to layer some awesome part of chimerical reality onto? The example I'm going to pull is immediately villainous, but I always think of it through the term of a familiar. Iago from Aladdin for Jafar, he's totally a conscience type figure. He does a terrible job at it. But speaking as someone who had to develop the skill of recognizing when people are uncomfortable, the idea of any form of assistive technology to do that. So I could imagine the chimerical reality of a wheelchair is anything but. It is It is now a, a UFO. It is a mighty six-legged Schleipnir steed. Hearing aid is animals collecting sound waves and passing them to the changeling's ears or 
I mean, even as something as simple as glasses can become some high-tech futuristic visor or binoculars or any of these other a dozen other things that I can think of that don't necessarily have to be limiting in a way. They're not a shackle. They're a, they can be a form of freedom. It almost would depend on the perspective of the changeling themselves on what the technology does for them. I would not have thought of a social cues parrot. If I had a social cues parrot, I would, I would keep him around all the time. No kidding. I, I love the idea of social cues parrot, and I, I want to now play a changeling who buys the chimera background and has a social cues parrot. I feel like that would be great with a puka. Victor? Oh, God. Whenever you put my uh, knocker into whatever... <laughs> the wood chipper. <laughs> I don't know. Some of the social situations I put him in have been the equivalent of a wood chipper for a knocker. <laughs> and I've managed them. Managed them. <laughs> and there is a lovely mouse driving a little toy train out there somewhere that says you have done more than managed. <laughs> I build what should not be possible with gears, a locomotive for our tiny mouse friend who then decides to start it up because it functions. It's the dreaming. Nobody cares about coal power or physics. And that's also when I banality triggered myself by recognizing because I'm a knocker, it's going to have some sort of flaw, like maybe blowing up. I want to thank Natali for letting us prevail on him to answer some questions and share his thoughts. Blank stairs and bland verse, blind man dancing on spiral stairs, pretending there's a straight line. Do you hop to the drum of power, the dream of having control over everybody and nature and heaven too? And here I am, still, wearing my robes and speaking in the tongue of prophecy. But don't listen, pay no heed. I see the world torn to pieces. I see a dark place. Hidden from the rush to authority, a place where the brook sings undisturbed, and a tree grows, although its branches wither, and the tree waits, as do I, to see if it will survive, for its life is human destiny. I would like to thank Sarah O'Brien for coming and joining us today. This is another one of our interviews for the episode where we are discussing the way that disability intersects with Changeling the Dreaming. She is part of our motley for the episode. Thank you very much for joining us to talk about this and how some of these themes show up in Changeling. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. My name is Sarah O'Brien. I am... 35. I've been playing the World of Darkness since I was about 15. So I've been doing the game for about 20 years or so, primarily tabletop rather than live action, but pretty much all of the lines. 
Changeling is a longtime favorite, and I always like talking about it. The reason why uh, you guys kind of reached out to me today is, in addition to being a longtime gamer, I am also a disabled person. I have uh, a series of various comorbid orthopedic issues that have caused a a variety of issues over time. um, Some of them were birth defects. Some of them have uh, manifested later as a result of the birth defects and some other various neurological issues that that cause problems on a regular basis. I'm actually uh, recovering from a a gastrointestinal issue flare right now. There's a lot going on there. Um, I'm really interested in talking about the way that changeling intersects with disability because it isn't touched on a lot other than just sort of glancingly in a couple of instances. And I think that there's a lot of discussion to be had there. And I'm happy to go over it with you today. Thank you very much for for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Just to kind of start out, where do you see your experiences with some of your disabilities being mirrored in Changeling? Where Where do you see that space really existing in the game? And do you think it's a productive space that you enjoy sort of inspecting or do you wish that Changeling maybe handled those themes a little differently? I believe that Changeling handles some of it in a productive manner, but there are also areas where there is definite room for improvement. I think that there are opportunities that were missed out for discussion with potential banality triggers, not per se for disabled people within their own lives and their own spaces, but for the way that the rest of society interacts with disabled people. There's some glamour and banality dynamics that could have been explored a little bit more. I think perhaps if they would had a little bit more input from people in the disabled community when they were writing. But at the time that all of this was initially written in the 90s, there was a lot of issues with the disabled community weren't the only missteps that were being made in terms of their writing. Just from the pure facet of not having consulted people within the communities they were writing about. But I do think that there are some elements of it that they got right. I like some of the way that House Ducal is presented, at least the way that House Ducal was presented prior to C20. I, I don't care as much for the presentation during C20, but that's interesting. And I, I kind of like some of the way that they present that. I do have some issues with how they've presented, for example, House Baylor or Bellor with how they perceive deformities and some of the other ways that some of the other lines handle it as well. But I I think there's room for improvement because there's always room for improvement. I would like to see more in the future done. Even if they aren't able to write that into canon, I know we're going to handle it that way at our table anyway. There's always a lot of sort of wrapping issues like that up in in sort of how you do things at individual tables. Changeling especially seems to have more of that even than I find the other World of Darkness games a lot of times. Yeah, Changeling is very prone to um, take the canon material that is written in front of you and expand on it with Flourish to make it actually fit. You brought up um, House Dougal and not totally loving necessarily their new presentation. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I have to admit that was an experience that I had with them as well, although in my case, it it was more based in my 
education background. I was a, a metalsmith. And their new version wasn't a growth of that. It felt totally new. Could you talk a little bit about what aspects of the C20 version of Dougal didn't sit well with you? Well, to start, it, so that it isn't entirely negative, I did like that they had been very involved in maker spaces. I think that that was a welcome addition. I I didn't quite like how they hand-waved it in, that it was always this way, you just weren't paying attention. But I did like that. But what I don't as much care for with the new version is instead of having the Dougal deformity be representative of the oaths that they've sworn as a house and their house history. It now just kind of feels piecemeal. Like there's no, there's no intention behind the ways that their bodies change as being from being part of the house. You're just kind of, I hate to use this analogy, but it, it feels kind of like they're the Borg, like pieces just sort of randomly crop up to change. And it, it just, it doesn't feel narratively cohesive. It also, there's something about it that I dislike that I find difficult to articulate. It just feels kind of like, well, let's make them not grotesque, but bizarre and express that with massive physical changes that everybody can see. It just, it felt really odd. I didn't care for it. I also got the bored feeling from them too. And it's hard not to feel the Borg as banal at least my read on it was that it was linking the augmentation or the assistive technology that Dougal uses with banality, which I think is why it didn't sit very well with me. That's fair. And it wasn't, that's not per se a comparison that I immediately drew, but now that you mention it, that is actually a very fair comparison. I get kind of the impression from Changeling as a whole that anything that could potentially impact what your average able-bodied person would think of as their quality of life that could in some way damage their ability to go about their routine, that that thing would inherently be banal. Thus, because of the language of changeling, that it would inherently be bad or evil, which starts getting into the narrative tropes of anything deformed, anything different is inherently evil. Like, for example, I was watching earlier today on Netflix a television show where a character in it who is very clearly telegraphed as the bad guy is the only one in the entire show with any kind of obvious physical deformity. He, he has albinism. It's very clearly brought in as like almost kind of a mark of sin, which I hate to say but it's very clearly alluded to is that and the heroes actually kind of make fun of it at points and point it out as like they use it as part of a weakness to get to him to bring him down because they go to his doctors they go to his specialists to try to get his specialists to call him in after hours and so that way they can ambush him and stuff it's like you're you're using characters yeah (laughs) you're you're using a character's like medical condition as a way to like telegraph his evil intentions and that that mm-hmm. felt weird and i feel a little bit like gaming in general tends to do that white wolf does it a fair bit changeling isn't the most egregious game 
in the White Wolf lines to do it, but Changeling does it a fair bit. Yes, there's, you know, the obvious example of House Baylor. They are... Yeah. I don't feel like I'm being unfair, but maybe I'm being unfair, but, like, they're written in a very much, kind of like you said, the mark of the sin kind of way. Yeah, and... and that's uncomfortable to me that and the way that they're they are presented in the canonical material as having um such a brash negative attitude that makes everybody so deeply uncomfortable with them in addition to their obvious physical deformities they have this really really brash really in your face attitude about it that reminds me of some of the negative stereotypes that you can see occasionally about disability advocates I can appreciate disability advocates that push for, I want to make sure that everybody understands nothing's wrong with me. I'm perfectly fine. The world needs to change for me. I personally like to take more of an integrated approach where I do have issues. Not everybody in the entire world needs to bow to accommodate for everything for me other than letting me be able to experience the world and not actively attempting to impede me experiencing the world in a similar way to everybody else. But with the Balor, they tend to come off as the, I don't like to say it this way, but for the sake of brevity, kind of the aggressively obnoxious advocate that wants nothing but to make people uncomfortable. Kind of like the, like if you even look at the, uh, Seely and Unseely Legacies, the Unseely Legacy grotesque kind of pushes that, kind of ties in with the way I feel about Baylor. <laughs> or Balor, rather. Well, and I feel like with Balor, it's one of those situations where the person who wrote them, and I, I really don't quite know what they were trying to tap, but they didn't think about the way that the story that they were spinning about their background and being part Fomorian would intersect with what it would mean to define them as disabled. Because if you take the, the disabled piece out, all of those things can read a different way through the lens of, you know, we were part Fomorian, we were betrayed by the Tuaha, etc. But as soon as you add this defining characteristic, it can't be that anymore it becomes this reflection of all of these other phenomena that are tied to real world cultural dynamics and it it just makes them really hard to navigate i have to admit i kind of ignore their flaw when i use them when i use them i tend to be like we're going with the lou background story and the betrayal that that might represent and i'm not I'm not including all of this over here because I can't engage with that story and this disabled dynamic with their flaw and not have them intersect in ways that don't help the story. That's fair because once you, once you start bringing that in, it does kind of dramatically skew their narrative. um, And it starts telling a different story about them and a different story about their relationship with the Kithane and their relationship with the Fomorians. I like including them for potentially having that toxic relationship with with the parts of yourself that society doesn't necessarily accept and sort of 
being out and proud is typically associated with the LGBT community, but there are also other ways with other minority communities that that expresses itself. And for some people in the various disabled communities and in the disabled community as a whole, um, they tend to kind of push that as the forefront of their identity to make themselves as visible as possible. And there is a story to be told about that. I just don't think that tying it in with something that the narrative of the story is, uh, the narrative of the greater story is saying is sort of evil is maybe the best move. It's not the best look. That's kind of why I'm so uncomfortable with it being Valor specifically. It just, it feels awkward. I have a question about another corner of the game. And if this is something that you're not as familiar with, that's fine. But there is one other splat in Changeling that has a a flaw that's primarily defined as they have a disability and it's physical. And that's the Ondine. I've read through the anatomy materials and I think that it's interesting. And I'm somewhat familiar with the Ondine. I know that they have like you're saying, something, some disability, essentially. And that the way that they're written somewhat implies that it's a mobility disability, preferably from the material it looks like, that it's something that affects their ability to walk or stand for lengths of time. Kind of like old legends about mermaids that come onto land and they don't properly fit here, so there's always something wrong with their feet or their legs or in some fashion to remind them constantly that they don't belong. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what the pitch is, that they're out of place, that they are, yeah, that they don't belong here, that they're not meant to exist in this world. And I'm curious about your view on that take and the way that that's presented. From a narrative perspective, how it ties into folklore, I like that. But if we're tying it into modern disability politics that can touch a couple of sensitive places for some people because so often people that are disabled are often reminded by the public through a variety of means typically microaggressions people you know taking up handicap spaces that kind of thing that don't actually need them, people using handicapped restroom stalls that don't actually need them. They're constantly reminded that we're an inconvenience, that uh, we're an extra expense, that we don't belong in that space. I actually saw a thing online not terribly long ago, and I reposted it on Facebook. Um, someone had suggested that handicap placard spaces should have a time limit, that they should only be accessible to the handicap from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. because if they're handicapped, they don't have any reason to be out after normal business hours. And so normal people, in air quotes, and this is what was said in the post, should be able to have access to those front prime spaces instead, because clearly those handicapped people won't need them. A friend of mine had responded to it, and the gentleman who posted it was named Daniel. It's like, Daniel, we're handicapped. We're not werewolves. We, we don't only have specific times that we're active. We're human beings that function at all hours, at all times. But a lot of people tend to not think about that and just sort of think of 
the handicapped people that they see as pity porn, essentially. Um, it's something to look at and feel bad about, but not to actually consider as a real human being that has real needs that genuinely belongs in the same spaces that you do at the same times and in the same ways. So to answer your question about the ondines, I part of me likes it from a let's take a folklore narrative and twist it in an interesting way. And part of me is uncomfortable with it from a look at it in a modern disability context. I feel like there's a way there if you're very conscious of what that dynamic is to say, okay, this is going to be the banality. Like this is going to be the banality theme in this game and lean into it and make it the villain, if you will, the thematic villain, the autumn person type of representation where you could make that work if you were aware of, you know, the people at your particular table and maybe did a little bit more pre, I don't know if negotiation is the right term, but maybe planning around those themes. Do you feel like that's a space that with the right people you think could be explored well, or do you think that's maybe too fraught to play around with? I think that with the right group of people at a competent storyteller's table where everybody has already kind of agreed that it's acceptable for certain themes to be explored, that nearly any kind of story can be told in a respectful way. I think that's certainly a story that can be told in a respectful way with people that kind of understand the gravity of what it means and how it can affect real people's lives. I think that absolutely could be handled well. I think there's a lot of subjects that could be handled well that definitely need to be handled delicately. And that is definitely one of them. That provides a pretty good segue into, into talking about the way the reactive nature of chimerical reality would provide a medium for discussing disability and health-related issues and the way these things are invisible to most able-bodied people. There's a there's a moment in one of the many, many, many X-Men cartoons that still sticks with me. It was one of the versions where Professor X had a normal wheelchair, not the flying one, but he had just come off of solving somebody's really strange problem and was confronted with no ramp outside of the building he needed to get into. And I don't remember exactly what the line was, but it was something like, I'm the most powerful psychic in the world and I can't get into this building. And it just always stuck to me. That actually reminds me, there was a um, an issue. I'm a comics reader. Um, there was an issue of Ultimate X-Men where they actually used Charles's disability against him um, in that way where somebody was sent to kill him that had been in some way shielded psychically. I think it was that universe's version of Mr. Sinister, who I always liked. And he went over, grabbed onto the back of Charles's chair, took him over to a stairwell and said something to the effect of uh, most powerful psychic in the world. And I found your one weakness stairs and then shoved him down them. Ooh, that's a party foul. <laughs> yeah. 
That's Sorry. a good example of what not to do. <laughs> yeah, it's just that that was something I when you mentioned that that immediately came to mind. And I remember mm -hmm. reading it and just kind of having to put the book down for a minute and go, Wow, someone just wrote that and thought that was cool. I mean, granted it was and a an book. editor thought it was cool. An editor thought it was cool, a writer thought it was cool. This the made its way cool. all the way into my hands. <laughs> With the more environmental barriers, the ones that are cases of negligence rather than people being awful intentionally most mm -hmm. of the time, most of the time. I feel like there's a really thematic way to invoke the problems changelings have evading and working around the way the world itself is hostile to them. And I'm not quite able to get there on my own. I think that that's an interesting subject to explore. Um, and there's definitely some kind of crossover to the way that various minority communities and specifically the disabled community, because so often there are mobility barriers um, that are a real analog there to how to get around in the world, how to function and, just kind of be allowed by everybody else to exist. I think that there's definitely some room to explore in there. If I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure quite how to finesse that out to make all of that work personally. I remember kind of in prep for the show, I remember Simon, you mentioning the idea of a centaur who in the autumn world would be a person in a wheelchair and how does how could one in theory reconcile that and i really really like that idea but if i'm being completely honest i have no idea how to make it properly work it's mm. something i'd like to think about and like to find ways to make work but right now as i sit i i'm not sure how to like functionally mechanically within the system make that exist but i think it's really cool <laughs> well and i think there are some mechanics built into Changeling for that, and they they flipped some of them when they moved to C20 in ways that I feel like impact the game's ability to explore some of those scenarios. And I don't really know whether it makes it better or worse. I know the example I can think of is in older editions of Changeling, if you were a troll and you're actually maybe six feet tall, but your troll form is like eight, nine feet tall, something, you know, ridiculous like that. And you walk through a doorway and your body fits, you have to duck, even though your physical body can fit, because to do otherwise is to deny the the chimerical body. And then in C20, they like flipped that. And I don't remember the exact framing, but I know you didn't have to duck anymore it was and, that intent was more important than action. Yeah, and it, it just seemed like a really strange thing to change. I kind of understand changing that in a LARP context, because I know that was always a little silly in LARPs, and people felt that was weird to like act through that as often as they had to. But in a tabletop game, I thought that that created dynamic moments, and having... I felt like it created a space, and again, I, I don't know quite the right way to tap it, but where that centaur dynamic of my chimerical body, including, you know, my assistive technology, is 
this big, powerful, amazing thing. And how do I express that? And how does the reality of, of the way the world sees me, you know, induce penality triggers, that's all a really engaging thing. And then as soon as you like strip away the direct impact of what happens when you don't actually play through that on your psyche, I don't know. I feel like it took some of that away, but then maybe it also took away some of the more screwy, not so great to play through moments. I think that it takes something away from the way that you can role play certain scenes. It also simplifies in a good way some things that might have been a little bit more difficult or silly, like like how does your satyr reconcile wearing shoes? <laughs> or that sort of general thing. Like I, I actually quite liked the the way that it had previously been set up where you had to, you know, duck through doors at times, but there were times when it made things difficult and less productive. I like the idea of having to sort of navigate chimerical reality in addition to physical reality and having to deal with people's disbelief in that and having to deal with this, those same kind of dynamics of, well, I, I've run off with a spaghetti strainer on my head to go and fight this particular patch of air and everybody around me is staring and I'm having to deal with their disbelief and their banality and kind of equating that into how you navigate your physical body and how present you are in your physical body. And something that I notice a lot with people in the disabled community is that they tend to be everybody to a certain extent, unless you have a dissociative disorder is aware of your body and aware of its needs. But people in a disabled community tend to have different relationships with their bodies, particularly if you have a physical disability. You tend to have a different relationship with your body and its needs and what goes into maintaining it. And sometimes that earns you strange looks and kind of earns you those real world banality triggers. And so I I think there's an analog there and a good way for some stories to be told and have some real world context. Yeah, so that actually brings up an interesting thing you talked about real world banality triggers and we've we've touched on that a little bit but how often would you say you experience those moments where you think this is absolutely like what a banality trigger is in changeling and like do you think that that's fleshing out those sorts of experiences from living with the experience of particular disabilities in changeling how well do you think that would work I think it would work very, very well. Um, I think being a part of any minority and experiencing microaggressions is an excellent analogy. The microaggressions that disabled people tend to face tend to be not just things about your lifestyle that people per se in like the LGBT community may have, but things about your body and how it is inconveniencing other people and whether or not you look like you properly belong in the community because of invisible disabilities. In my instance, as I was saying, I I have a, a variety of comorbid orthopedic issues. It stems from, I have a partially corrected at this point because of surgery, clubbed foot, and I have a mild form of, a mild presentation rather of 
um, spastic hemiplegia, which is a kind of cerebral palsy. Um, in my instance, it affects the left side of my body and it affects my muscle tone and it affects my strength. It has affected long bone development. I've developed scoliosis. I've developed arthritis. There's just a host of stuff. But because in my particular instance, my presentation is mild enough that it's just sort of nudge things into not working the way that they typically would for an abled person. If I'm not wearing something that, you know, fully reveals my left arm and my upper back and my left leg, I've gotten comments in the past where it's like, oh, I didn't know anything was, and this is a banality trigger for, for me, I would think if, if such a thing existed in the real world. I didn't know anything was wrong with you. You look like you're fine. I, I couldn't tell there was anything wrong. It's like, well, there, I do have some problems, but I don't tend to think of them as things that are wrong with me. They're just part of what I deal with every day, just like someone else has to deal with particularly frizzy hair or what have you. Mine tend to sometimes involve pain management medication, but for me, it's normal. And so being reminded that to other people it is not normal is that's jarring and disconcerting. And I, I feel like that's kind of a real world banality trigger. And I think that's definitely a banality trigger that could be exploited and changeling, especially if you wanted to start bringing in disability in a more realistic way. That actually makes me think about something that I read recently. This is in the new C20 Boggan Kiss book. And they did something in this kit book that they haven't done in all the others. Maybe they did it in a couple. But they have a write-up on each of the she houses, even though it's a commoner kit book. And they talk about the Boggins' view of the houses and also, like, how they deal with their members of the houses, how the boon and the ban manifest. But under House Dougal, there was this line about how much they love House Dougal and they love the maker culture. But then they say some are driven away by the way members of House Dougal constantly seek to perfect, and that's in quotes, perfect in, in the book, perfect themselves with artificial replacements, while others appreciate the artistry that goes into each and every piece, considering every high-ranking member of the house a living work of art. And when I read that, I'm like, we have somehow captured, like, demonizing a thing and exoticizing and glorifying the thing all in one sentence. And I find that fascinating that they pulled off both of those, especially due to the self-manifesting nature of the new Dougal flaw that just read. I don't know how it read to me. It, it stuck out. It was that like nail that refused to go down into the board when I was reading. I'm curious about your take on that and, how that, you see that manifesting, because it seems similar to what you just described, although maybe adjacent. No, it's it's adjacent, and you do obviously get into fetishization, which is deeply uncomfortable. It's deeply uncomfortable for anybody, any group that's being fetishized in any fashion, because you're not interested in that person as a person, as an individual, with all of their various character flaws and merits and what have you you're interested in a very specific often ex uh, physical external thing about them that excites you or disgusts you and you are attracted to that disgust and some passion um and that's what you want instead of 
the human being and that's uncomfortable i don't i don't care for that at all and you are very right that that there is definitely this simultaneous we're going to fetishize and exoticize you but we're also in part just repelled by you trying to fix yourself to be something other than this pure form that you had been before that kind of speaks a little bit to like makeup shaming almost which is not at all related to the disability topic but for some reason it comes to mind with the the whole cultural meme of take her swimming on the first date so you can see what she really looks like like you're you seek them out for looking this particular way and they aren't doing it for you they're doing it for themselves you seek them out for looking this particular way, but you are internally disgusted by it in such a way where you feel as though you're being lied to, even though this was something that you knew that you were looking for all along. That, for some reason, that comes to mind too, and it's equally uncomfortable. I feel like we've talked a lot about the space that you can make in Changeling for exploring disability is one of exploring the things that can be obnoxious about the experience. I think we should also talk about the ways that the game makes a space for the stuff that could be awesome about the experience. The quintessential experience of changelings is going through their chrysalis, which is at the same time a terrifying moment. It's also kind of that realization of your own potential to be something amazing and do you think that there is a a way to kind of organically fit disability into that because the game in at least a couple of cases makes it a part of different characters i definitely think that there is especially if you're talking about someone who has become disabled through some action, some event that's happened later in their life after they have become accustomed to being abled in their younger days. Realizing that your life has dramatically changed and oftentimes in some traumatic way, if it's something that has happened to you as an older person, potentially even as an adult, realizing that the way that you have gone about things prior may not necessarily work for you now. You may have to find different ways. But at the same time, you also discover a lot of things about yourself. You discover a lot of things about your support network. You discover a lot of things about your community that are very positive. You forge new relationships with people. Your relationship dynamics change often in very positive ways. There's a lot of room for having a better understanding of empathy and sympathy, not just from the perspective of the disabled person who now has new challenges, but also new benefits, but also from the position of any potential caregivers. There's a lot of room to learn about yourself and grow, which I think there's a good analogy for in chrysalis specifically, like you were saying. Things have changed. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything is bad. Sometimes those changes can bring a lot of great things. Yeah, I've 
talked to and well talked isn't exactly the right word in this context but um <laughs> i've had discussions with some of my deaf friends about the first time that they went to deaf school or deaf camp and that being kind of like their coming out experience into the community that requires less performance and less less accommodation from the individual there're just fewer moments where they had to do that mental calculus of do i cut something of myself off to fit into this experience or do i make a fuss and some of the reading i've done especially around people with other disabilities going into i think the word was respite camp but going to a summer camp that specialized in providing a summer camp experience for people with disabilities that that experience was very similar in that way and the thing that struck me about both of those things was that it was about coming into community and finding mm, i don't know if it's finding your people but that experience seems like chrysalis is almost ready made for it in some ways i agree being in a position where you don't have to you're not having to code switch you're not having to perform a role you're not having to perform to people's expectations of being the good disabled person who is constantly stoic you'll be able to be around people that understand a your struggles and b the benefits of what you've experienced and your example of the deaf community is excellent where you're able to sort of be among people who are able to understand you particularly with deaf people i've noticed that there tends to be a sense of very very strong community very very strong sense of belonging when deaf people are able to communicate completely silently and not have to worry about performing for hearing in any fashion i have a relatively limited but some command of asl in my workplace i have several customers who are hearing impaired and whenever they come in and see me and interact with me and i'm able to communicate with them via sign they are instantly brighter instantly happier trying to communicate in that fashion than trying to obviously pantomime through with some hearing person who's not interested in trying to make their experience more welcoming and the idea of being able to let a little bit of your guard down and let yourself be able to be comfortable with people for who you are is it's absolutely ready made for chrysalis it's ready made for motley communities and it's something that you see in various handicapped communities all the time working in assistive technologies and devices into making your mien in changeling it seems like a place that would be really really ripe to me for taking that able-bodied perception that any sign or signal of disability is some kind of tragedy and twisting it and turning it into something that reflects more honestly what the person who uses the assistive device feels about it i feel like that's a really important space that the game doesn't touch on 
probably because nobody thought to touch on it. I feel like that house doodle is a great place to put that, but it could go a lot of other places too. What assistive technologies do you think would make good bases for building thematically appropriate to, you know, disabled experience chimerical powers? I like the idea of doing that. I'm trying to think of assistive technologies that would be appropriate. It depends on how you're defining assistive technologies, because that could, in theory, be pretty broad. That could be everything from, like, a mobility disability, where you're talking about a wheelchair or leg braces or crutches. Mm -hmm. And in theory, you could even take that into various medications that people have to take to sustain their quality of life or in some instances to even survive, like an insulin pump or for severe mental health issues, you could even look at like SSRIs, for example. I think that might actually be a good one if you were willing to incorporate medication of that nature, that might actually be a good one where you could, in theory, kind of tie in maybe for me and my experience with SSRIs, because I, I do take an SSRI for generalized anxiety disorder. For me, SSRIs kind of give me emotional distance and clarity that I otherwise don't have and have difficulty with kind of falling into patterns of cyclical or catastrophic thought. So perhaps something that could, in theory, reflect being able to have that emotional distance and being able to kind of have a cooler, more dispassionate, logical ability to analyze situations kind of give you even perhaps an awareness bonus or an alertness bonus or perception bonuses of some kind, or perhaps even a wits bonus to be able to kind of keep a cooler mind would be an interesting way to handle that. In terms of like a physical mobility aid, I would love to see something like that, but right this second I'm struggling to come up with something that would accurately reflect the experience that wouldn't sound trite. But I'm definitely going to think about that for my games because I like that idea. One more quick question just to kind of close. Is there anything else you wish that we had asked? We kind of talked around banality and glamour dynamics and how banality triggers would work with this. But I think that it would have been interesting and something that I would like to kind of explore more at my table in my games and something I'm going to think about later to kind of talk more about glamour dynamics because we talked about the potential for real world banality triggers and how you could equate that in. But Simon had brought in talking about the positive aspects of it. You could also in theory bring in glamour dynamics and some of the ways that you could discuss how one could gain glamour, how people in a disabled community being able to have a sense of togetherness, like for example, and you were talking about camps and another kind of meetups, schools, that sort of thing, being able to generate glamour from that sense of belonging, having renewed hope, which is obviously one of the, the big musing techniques and how that could play into it. That's something that I wish we could have talked a little bit more about, but it's definitely something that I'm kind of going to work on more homework at my own table. Yeah, I feel like 
beyond general glamour and epiphany, there's like a freehold story and archetype to explore there that, or maybe a series of them that could be really interesting. Yeah. I realize that so much of Changeling treats medicalization as part of the fear of death that tends to be a big driving factor for banality. But there are ways that medicalization could be used to generate glamour and to be a positive force. Like having a really good, really competent doctor's group in a specialty that really advocates for patients. Having an outpatient hospital that has... I had a friend actually that was in an outpatient hospital for a couple of months. He was confined there for a little while and then he was able to come and go as he needed while he was in a recovery process from a medically induced coma. There was the just hopelessness coming off of the people in waves that all the people that had been there for some time that weren't improving and weren't looking to improve had, but there were also a lot of people there that cared a lot and pushed 110% to come in and get complete strangers out of bed and moving and get to know everything they could about them and who genuinely cared about complete strangers to make their lives better. Yeah, there's a great changeling story there. Yeah, I I think that that could definitely tie into a campaign idea or a freehold environments like that, especially the idea of like a medical complex, a physical therapy complex. I've I've actually been to a couple of really, really good physical therapy complexes here where I live in North Texas that I think could almost qualify as freeholds. That kind of gets into some interesting, weird space. We talked about a little bit in the other interview we did about the oddness of freeholds being toxic and inducing bedlam, which has been reintroduced recently in Book of Freeholds. So... I feel like I'd want to play around with that and maybe tweak that dynamic uh, in building freeholds like that one. Yeah, I think that get really interesting. I, I kind of like the freehold bedlam dynamic personally, and I think that there are some interesting ways to tweak it to kind of make it work around this. The first time I saw her, everything in my head went quiet. All the ticks, all the constantly refreshing images just disappeared. When you have obsessive-compulsive disorder, you don't really get quiet moments. Even in bed, I'm thinking, did I lock the door? Yes. Did I wash my hands? Yes. Did I lock the door? Yes. Did I wash my hands? Yes. But when I saw her, the only thing I could think about was the hairpin curve of her lips or the eyelash on her cheek. The eyelash on her cheek. The eyelash on her cheek. I knew I had to talk to her. I asked her out six times in 30 seconds. She said yes after the third one, but none of them felt right, so I had to keep going. On our first date, I spent more time organizing my meal by color than I did eating or talking to her. But she loved it. She loved that I had to kiss her goodbye 16 times, or 24 times if it was Wednesday, She loved that it took me forever to walk home, because there are a lot of cracks on our sidewalk.
I would just really like to thank you, Sarah, for coming and joining us. You definitely brought a lot of new perspectives to the conversation that we both appreciate very much. Thanks a lot. And I don't know, hopefully we might have a topic in the future where you'd be able to join us again. I really appreciate you extending the offer for me to come on. I'm a big fan of the podcast. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I was really glad to talk about all this with you. You guys gave me ideas too. And I would love to come and talk with you more. Thank you so much. Readings from this conversation were Touch by Catherine Larley and OCD by Neil Hilborn. The music from this episode was LSD by Mon Plaisir.